I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the FT Business Books podcast, the place to discover the best in business writing. I'm Helen Barrett, the FT's work and careers editor, and with me again is columnist Andrew Hill. Hello. We're talking to the six authors who have made the shortlist for the world's most coveted prize for business writing, the 2017 FT and McKinsey Business Book of the Year Award. Find the shortlist at ft.com forward slash book award and find out who the winner is on November the 6th. Tweet us at ftworkcareers using the hashtag ftbizbooks. This week we meet our fourth author, Brian Merchant, whose book The One Device, The Secret History of the iPhone, impressed our judges with its forensic approach to uncovering what lies behind the most profitable product in the world. Brian joins us now from a writing retreat near Lake Tahoe. Welcome, Brian. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Brian, Apple is the most valuable company ever. And in this book, you promise us the inside story you won't hear from Cupertino. It's a towering investigation. You take us to California, to South America, to the deserts in Chile and mines in Bolivia and toxic waste pits in Africa and factories in China. Did you know when you started this what you were getting into? Well, yes and no. I mean, I certainly knew that uh, Apple was this monolithic, you know, almost mythic company that was extremely good at controlling its own narrative and keeping questions limited to journalists that could trust to answer them. So I knew that that was going to be a challenge. I did not know that it would be such a challenge that finding out would lie behind the screen of the iPhone would require not only spending a lot of time drilling down into into Cupertino and finding folks who are willing to talk there, but also sort of traipsing the world and, and, and following each of the component parts that make this thing possible to its root. So it was a bit more of an undertaking than I initially assumed, even though I imagined it would be formidable. It ended up taking the better part of two years doing nothing but wading knee deep into uh, the one device. And you're a veteran tech journalist, but I take it you're not one of Apple's trusted journalists. Is that right? (laughs) That's right. Yeah. (laughs) You know, part of its marketing strategy is to sort of groom a handful of journalists. They don't necessarily need to be propagandists or anything like that, but folks that they can count on to sort of tell Apple's story in a positive light, or at least positive enough. So needless to say, I fell outside that purview, as do most journalists who are sort of intent on asking tough questions uh, outside of what its latest spate of products is going to be. You know, it's just a kind of a different sort of journalism. My background was more in environmental journalism and sort of the politics of technology and, and that sort of thing. So I naturally sort of gravitated towards taking a more holistic approach 
towards understanding the, you know, the, the product itself instead of, you know, its interface with consumers. Some of the things that you write about obviously have been written about before. The factories in China and the, and the somewhat grim approach to that mass production of the iPhone and some of the some of the stories about the natural resources being mined to put into the iPhone. But I'm wondering what was the most shocking thing that you've thought you'd uncovered about the making of the device? Well, you know, I found it pretty shocking to visit Foxconn firsthand. Uh, that's I the, manu- knew, that's the Chinese manufacturer. Taiwanese that's the Chinese manufacturer. Yeah, the company, it's one of the biggest technology companies in the world. And it manufactures devices, not just for Apple, but for Samsung and a number of others. And the story of, of the suicide epidemics, this incredibly tragic story that broke in 2010 or so, was well known, if briefly. So what was shocking to me was to go back six or seven years later and to find that despite the promises from Cupertino and despite a lot of assurances from the likes of Steve Jobs at the time and Tim Cook, very little had changed in the fundamental makeup of how these devices are manufactured and sort of the working environment in which they're done. So so it was shocking to me to see that, you know, despite the iPhone long since taking its place as this well-known luxury skewing product that has been embraced by the world, you know, how it gets manufactured is still a bit of a dirty secret. So that was shocking to walk through this factory, which was the size of a small city state, really. I mean, half a million people at, at its height work in this one factory complex. So being there amidst this place that is not cultivated for anything but workmanlike efficiency and that people sort of live their lives out, it, it was really it really did have a pretty profound effect on me. And, you know, visiting Bolivia to see where some of the tin came from and and seeing the conditions there was alarming and learning many of the histories of the technology itself was also pretty mind blowing to me. So there was actually, you know, the fun thing about this book was that there were surprises around every turn. Some of them were grim. Most of them were not. Those are the ones that seem to resonate and a lot of device users you know, feel like they need to know that information the most. It has sort of the most urgency, but there are many surprising things that I learned throughout this this little journey. But you're still a, a user. I mean, you're speaking to us on an iPhone, I think, now. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so, so did it change your feeling about the devices that you used? You went through quite a few of them in the book, if I didn't right. do a count, but you had some stolen in Chile, I think, and then you obviously deliberately yeah. destroyed a couple in order to find out what was inside them. But you're still using it, despite your knowledge of all the sacrifices that have gone into it. Yeah, that's right. And I think that one of the interesting things that all this reporting has kind of led to is this deep ambivalence, because we're put in this peculiar position now in modern society, so to speak. And that's that the iPhone or a smartphone is this fundamental tool that if you don't have one, you will fall behind in in your social life, your professional life. I call it one of the fundamental tools of the modern world, and, and it is. So we really, you know, don't have that many options when it comes to picking, you know, an alternative that isn't so to speak, ethically difficult. You know, Apple is one of the better companies that manufactures these devices. Just about any device maker that you look at, whether it's Samsung or LG, their supply chains are even murkier, less transparent, plagued with the same issues. Sometimes it's child labor, sometimes it's too much overtime in the manufacturing lines. But you really don't have a solid 
ethical alternative, unless you live in some parts of Europe, there's this new sort of nascent effort to try to, you know, make one called Fairphone. But even that is very small right now. And it's a very limited alternative. So uh, I guess that's a long winded way of saying that, yeah, I still use my iPhone. And I try to think about all these things that go into it. And I try to think about opportunities to raise more awareness about that whole universe that goes into making each one. But I certainly still use it. I still use an Apple MacBook and, uh, and I've got an iPad. So it's not that I'm shying away from the products after learning what I've learned. In the book, you're meticulous about telling us what goes into a single iPhone. So you buy an iPhone and you recruit a metallurgist to help you determine the chemical composition of a single phone by smashing one up and pulling it apart in a laboratory. And what what you find is quite shocking. I mean, when I was reading it, I had to keep interrupting my family and telling them, you'll never guess what's in an iPhone. Arsenic, you know, incredible things that you found. So it's 129 grams, exactly, as Apple advertises. 24% aluminium, which, as you point out, is incredibly cheap, a dollar a pound. 3% tungsten, commonly mined in Congo. 0.01 grams of arsenic. And you pull out all these stats from this. So from this breakdown of, I think, how many many minerals was it? 30 30 elements that you pull out. You estimate that about 34 kilograms of ore would be mined to produce one phone, 100 litres of water and 20.5 grams of cyanide to free enough gold because there's gold in, in an iPhone as well. And the raw metals are worth about one dollar and you then calculate that because a billion iphones have been sold by 2016 that suggests 34 billion kilos or 37 million tons of mined rock which is quite quite extraordinary i mean were you surprised when you pulled out that figure yeah i was surprised to hear i mean it's really kind of interesting to conceptualize it right like that huge towering pile of ore and and all these exotic minerals and some of these toxic materials and just to kind of imagine that on one end of a of a seesaw and the the ipod on the other iphone rather on the other it's really just it was this kind of striking thing to think about i do have to say that credit goes to um the metallurgist and mining consultant david michaud for crunching those numbers and he even who works in this you know industry of course and has for many years was pretty shocked to see that disparity between this tiny 129 gram device and the many, many, many thousands of tons of ore that have to be made to uh, to make each one or that go into making them every year. It really is, you know, an interesting thing to think about that this thing that I'm holding in my hand and talking to you through right now has caused the displacement of this radical amount of earth, has caused the, you know, the usage of all of these different chemicals. It's a it's an interesting way to think about these chain reactions that happen through the supply chain and how we're constantly just kind of reordering, you know, not just economic factors, but actual geography on a daily basis. And Apple is notoriously secretive, but it has published some information about its supply chain. Has Apple disputed any of your figures or findings? They have not. You know, I don't know what they actually think about a lot of this. I've asked them for comment numerous times and 
we had an ongoing game of email tag or phone tag over months and months and months in which interviews were promised and withheld, requests ignored, and sort of the usual dance that you get used to when you're covering Apple. So I never got a straight answer on a lot of these things or what even Apple's official line was. I do, however, know that after I brought to their attention the fact that um, they were using this this mine in Bolivia that is is known to to host child labor. I do know well as they've told me that once I brought it to their attention that they have stopped using the smelter that gets those mines. So I I mean I must have been right or onto something about that enough for them to be worried about it to sever ties with that smelter. And I I don't think they made an announcement, but they told me privately in an email. I mean even without the full cooperation of Apple, I mean you do manage to paint a very strong picture of another if you like toxic element that went into the making of the iPhone, which was the whole Apple culture at the time, um, with its incredibly tight secrecy around the project, not revealed to anyone internally. I, I love the scene where you're describing how they recruited engineers internally, telling them that they wanted them for a very secret project that they couldn't tell them anything about, and then making them decide on the spot whether to join it or not, which is an incredible tale of of that sort of division within the company. Part of me wonders whether, though, having seen some of them recount afterwards the poisonous effect it had on their families, divorces and, and, and family breakdown and illness and so on, part of me still wonders whether the iPhone could have been developed in any other way. And I wondered whether you'd concluded in the end that this, in a sense, was, again, another vital ingredient in getting it to be produced at all. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And it's one that I actually put to a number of the core designers and engineers who were involved in the process, because everyone that I spoke to, and I spoke to dozens of the folks who worked on the original iPhone team, some of them are still at Apple. The majority that I spoke to, on the record, of course, have since moved on, but were there during those core years. You know, some of them recount these stories as straight ahead horror stories, just my marriage dissolved. It was a nightmare. I gained 50 pounds. I was a walking anxiety bomb. It was a soup of misery was one quote that I heard. Yes, that's a um, love. Yeah. And and some others kind of almost wear it as kind of a badge of honor, like, oh, you know, we were working around the clock and this code, you know, there's kind of this mythology with coders that if you're working around the clock and not going home and not changing and not showering that you're really kind of onto something that's potentially revolutionary which they were so it's this strange sort of fixture in the story and i think that many of them lament that it couldn't have been done differently but i asked many you know do you see another way like what would have been better and most of them drew blanks you know it was just kind of like well maybe this is the way it it had to be because when you do kind of have lightning in a bottle and you have such a synergy going between designers and engineers and, you know, quality assurance people sending back the latest results and you've got parts coming and it's really just got this momentum that is really incredible. I mean, we're talking this iPhone really from soup to nuts once the project was greenlit. We're, matter of years that this game-changing device was built by a fairly small team of people primarily. So it was really, it really was that intense and maybe it would have been folly to say, okay, uh, you know, go home, take a two week vacation, do this. Who knows? I mean, they ended up with the most profitable product of our time. It's the most ubiquitous consumer electronic device 
you know, ever. And it certainly worked. So I, I think to say that maybe you could have avoided some of that toxicity, you know, you probably could have. Would it have affected the outcome? I don't know. I honestly don't. One of the things that you do a service for, for Apple, really, is by showing that although Steve Jobs strides through the pages here as a kind of angry polarizing figure you also reveal lots of the names of people who either didn't get credit at the time because it was secret or or possibly were deprived of credit because they contributed to it were were you surprised by the the extent to which it was a team operation or had you already set out uh, with the idea that this wasn't all about steve jobs one of the first things i did early on was kind of pour through the patents that were kind of considered the most important patents for the original iphone device and steve jobs name is always first sure but there's usually dozens more in uh, the so-called famous 949 patent there's over 20 names there's maybe as many as 29 sorry the 949 patent just explained that is oh that's a patent that sort of gathered together a lot of the the fundamental basics that they i mean this is the one that they go to in court against samsung say and right. say look this is everything that the iphone is it's a touch screen and an interface it has these design features and these these capabilities that no other device had at the time so it's kind of the um you know the founding document of the iphone's essence and there were many 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 people on this patent and i just started taking them off and and reaching out and finding out what their stories were. And and yeah, it really did not take long for it to become very clear that many people had a great deal of work invested in this thing. Innovations that completely flew under the radar, that completely went unheralded. You know, there's a handful of folks that, that I like to, you know, focus on because they're kind of exemplary of this, but there are dozens more even than that. But there, a guy like Wayne Westerman, who kind of brought uh, the technology called multi-touch, which is the technology that allows us to use multiple fingers to, you know, manipulate objects on the screen, and which is now sort of the standard vernacular for how we interface with computers and technology. This is a guy who has this incredible story of overcoming hardship and hand disability to build something for himself to use computers that ended up in a product that Apple then bought and then ported into the iPhone, more or less. And he you know, came onto Apple. He worked very hard on bringing that to reality. And then here's a guy who they forgot to invite him to the unveiling of the device, <laughs> of the iPhone launch in January 2007. At that famous keynote, Steve Jobs is up on the stage saying, well, we've done it. You know, we invented multi-touch. And then the guy who could actually feasibly have said to have done so is at home because they forgot to send him an invite. So there's kind of things like that in this story that I was really glad to bring them out and get some credit for these folks because it also paints a fuller picture of how innovation and how invention actually unfurls. You know, this lone inventor myth is one of the craziest, most misleading and most persistent myths of you know of 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 all time i mean it's a very american tendency we have to say this oh you know thomas edison you know came down from a mountain and he had the light bulb (laughs) and he pulled it out of his forehead and there it was and he gave it to the world and it was good and so we do with steve jobs but it's just the opposite is true it takes a whole ecosystem of people doing different things doing 
incredible work and collaborating. And it's almost incomprehensible, I think I say in the book, the scale to which this actually operates, this collective achievement to get us to something like the iPhone. So I really kind of wanted to, to hammer that home once it became clear to me just how, how true that was, what you just pointed out. You do a very good job of explaining how ideas are in the air. This is the phrase you keep coming back to. And you introduce us to a cast of characters even decades before the iPhone. So you introduce us to Frank Canova of IBM, who you think produced the first smartphone, an engineer from IBM. Bent Stump, a physicist, I think I've said his name right, a physicist who you tracked down in Switzerland. Was it hard to get hold of these people? And how did you decide which ones to include and which ones to disregard? Sometimes it was just a matter of, again, tracing the annals of technology history, which the through lines are often there, if not very widely explored or remarked upon. Frank Canova, for instance, I think there are a lot of people who would consider the Simon, which he invented, to be pretty much the first smartphone that came to market. And this was 1993. I, I, 1993. The Simon. Right. I, <laughs> it's so remarkable. It's I mean, I, I like to say if you were just to, to describe the basic fundamentals of the IBM Simon to a layperson, they would think you're talking about the iPhone. You know, like it's, oh, it's this black rectangular device with a touch screen and you press it to load apps and it can go on the Internet and, you know, you can do email on it. And it just sounds really like the blueprint, sort of the, the iPhone and Chrysalis, which it was. And those ideas sort of, you know, and I make the point in that chapter that many of those ideas had kind of been in the air for a while and he and he pulled them out. But he did sort of give it this this structure and this form that many other smartphone makers would attempt and put in. And there was a small but sort of under the radar lineage of smartphones that marched up to the iPhone before the iPhone sort of became the standard and, and drove it home. So yeah, absolutely. There are tons of these invisible lineages. And I no doubt left out hundreds of people who I could have included, who could be said to have played some small pivotal role here or there. Um, but in, including folks like Bent Stump was meant to be exemplary of the greater phenomenon, not necessarily sort of the definitive history of multi-touch in his case, or touch screens. Just to point out that there are many different sources or wellsprings that feed into the this final product. Your book's cunningly timed to coincide with the 10th anniversary of the launch of the iPhone and clearly they go on producing new versions with different additions to the original but as you point out in the book it's not significantly different from the first one and you quote rather surprisingly at the end one of the lead iPhone software engineers saying that in 20 years nobody's going to care about the iPhone I mean what do you think <laughs> in 10 years time we're still going to be talking about the iPhone 20 or whatever it may be at that point or will it as that engineer suggests, just be superseded by other technologies and it'll become a, an irrelevance? That's a, that's a great question. Those kind of speculations are the great folly of technology writers, I think. You're making those predictions and then you can either be so wrong 90% of the time or look really good when you're right one out of 10 times. And this is your so, chance to look really good and we'll call you back in 10 <laughs> years and, and, and check whether you're, whether you're right. Yeah, so I'm going to stake my reputation here on arguing that whether or not it's an iPhone, 
I think that we can pretty safely say in 10 years, we're going to be carrying a rectangular device with a screen. It'll probably be a touch screen. Maybe there'll be some more interfacing with voice assistance, or maybe not. Maybe there'll be some more augmented reality. But I tend to think that what they did with the iPhone and, you know, right next to that quote, I think you're talking about Henri Lamoureux's That's quote right, about yes. how te- technology is all sort of ephemeral and that's certainly one perhaps pessimistic way to look at it and that things will change and no one will care about, you know, whatever, the Mac or much less the Simon, you know, in, in enough time. But then I think just the next page, even Tony Fidel says, look at what has changed so far on the iPhone. It's been 10 years and that very first iPhone is almost functionally identical to the one that I have in my hand right now. It's still this grid of apps. It's still these basic functionalities. It's still Safari internet browser. It's still offering you maps and email access. It's still pocket-sized. It's still all of these things. And they've iterated it. They've tweaked it. They've introduced more powerful processors, bigger screen, of course, improvements. But we're 10 years on now, and we're still using a device that is incredibly similar to those fundamentals that are laid out. So using that sort of trajectory, how much change, you know, you can never predict a big disruption when something's going to throw everything off course. But given what we know now in the ingredients that I see percolating, at least, I think we've got another 10 years of iPhone, maybe more. Just want to ask you about the other finalists in the Business Book of the Year Award. There are some great books there. We've spoken to most of the authors already. Which of the five other shortlisted books have you enjoyed the most or are you most looking forward to reading? I really enjoyed Reset, Ellen Powell's book about her fight for inclusion in a very male-dominated industry. I think for me, it served as a very sort of granular, eye-opening account of the systemic sexism at these venture capital funds, and not only that, but in Silicon Valley. This there aren't many women in a... your book, it has to be said. It's, uh, it's <laughs> pretty clear. Right, right. <clears throat> right, it does. It's Wayne yeah, Westerman's uh, mother is the, but, uh, probably the most uh, prominent female character in your book. Yeah, it, I mean, it is. It, it was something that when I got done with my, you know, researching my book and laid everything out, it was something that rang out. And I had to remark upon it near the end of the book, because for decades now, it's been such a problem in Silicon Valley. And it's one that's not just a social issue, although it is that it is a political issue, but it's also it's a remarkable problem for these businesses that they're soon going to run into, I think, not having a full range of views going into their into their products. I mean, it's a bottom line issue, too. Right. I think first and foremost, it's a social issue, but it's just remarkable to me how resistant to change they are, given that we're looking at markets that are pretty saturated for white male computer users. You'd think that there would be many different imperatives to fix this issue. But here we are in 2017. We have these same gender disparity issues and you read about them. But what Ellen's book did is really brought it to life. Right. You know, we think about Silicon Valley as this revolutionary, disruptive, sort of transformative entity, not just as, you know, a hub of business, but also sort of a force for good socially, or at least that's how they'd very much like uh, themselves to be seen. And we see here that I, I like how in the book she starts out with her tenure at a, at a law firm in the East Coast. And then we see that Kleiner Perkins, 
the, the cultures there, the toxic cultures of masculinity, of these thousand cuts, as she says, that women have to endure are interchangeable, really. They've just replicated all the old toxic issues in new trappings. So it was really very revealing to me to see that sort of investigated and, and told very frankly. The one I'm most looking forward to reading myself is the great, is it the great leveling? The great, the great leveler. leveler. The great leveler, yeah. Walter Scheidel. Boy, yes. that looks great. Yeah, that you'll, need, really you'll, great. Need a, you'll need another retreat to read that. It's quite a chunky, <laughs> chunky volume. <laughs> yeah. And did you have a, do you have an all-time favorite business book that you uh, look on as something to emulate? Yeah. Uh, one book that I found really inspiring to me as I was writing my own book, even though it kind of takes an opposite approach, is Are You Familiar with uh, The Soul of a New Machine by Tracy Kidder? Yes. Yeah. He sort of drills down on one company and the personalities, the politics, the work culture. that, And he really did something that hadn't been done before and sort of brought to life the act of technological innovation. And you see a lot of the things that you see in my book, you see tough work cultures and, and you see some backstabbing and stuff. But he really did it really a, a fascinating job of bringing that to life. And that's, I guess I'd say, an all time business book or look into how a business is run. That's it from us. We'll be talking to another shortlisted author next week. In the meantime, don't forget to tweet us at FTWorkCareers using the hashtag FTBizBooks. We love to hear from you. My thanks to Brian Merchant, to Andrew Hill and to our producer, Yanina Conboy. Until next time, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.